Hey everybody, welcome to the Convergence Podcast. The Convergence is a space designed for university students, college students, and young adults to explore and deepen their faith. It's a space to think, question, doubt, and hopefully, ultimately, to worship. We are so glad you're here. So today's message is from Kurt Willems. Kurt is the pastor at Brentview Baptist Church. He is a podcaster, an author, an all-around great guy. And today he is speaking on Jesus and his politics. So I have, oh man, I have so much material. It's going to hurt my own brain. But what I'm going to try to do is try and sort of immerse you in this topic tonight. I've been asked to talk about Jesus and politics, and, and I think there's a title slide and it says the church and politics, and I'd actually changed it to say Jesus and politics, and then I grabbed the wrong one, apparently, my PowerPoint slide. So, you know, strike three. Maybe you don't want to hear from me now. But uh, Jesus and politics. Now, I'm an American. I don't know. Is there any other human being from the United States here? No, 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 I didn't think so. Usually not. Every once in a while, every once in a while there is. But so I'm an American. I've lived in Calgary for two months and I've been invited to talk to a group of people, most of whom probably grew up in in Canada, maybe some who didn't, but about politics. And the truth of the matter is I don't get politics here. Can I just be honest with you? Like in the United States, it's so obvious, right? There's You either like this group or that group. They're both jerks, but at least you kind of have a leaning, right? You either like the elephants or the donkeys, and you just kind of roll with that. Here, it's like nuanced and stuff, you know? And that's a very positive outlook, I know, as an American coming in, but uh, it's it's very different. So so what I'll say from the get-go is I have literally nothing of substance to say about what you should do as a good Canadian who's trying to follow Jesus and go to the polls. I just don't have anything, mostly because you're more educated on that than I am. But what I do have is a New Testament. And in this New Testament it is politically charged situations. And a lot of them that growing up, I didn't realize were as politically loaded as they are. You, you know what I mean? And so I want to try and get you into the world of the New Testament tonight. It's going to be a little bit world history-ish, all right? So we're going to be in the first century. We're not just talking about ideas. We're talking about things that happened on the ground as Jesus, the apostles, and the early church are trying to figure out what does it mean to be human in a world like this? Now, when I was a kid, I grew up with some ideas that I believe are just a little twisted. I have some images to help you understand American Christian politics in some sphere. So the first one looks like this. It's a flag. Yeah. So So I see this, and there's two things that really bother me about this image. The first is, why do we need a Christian flag at all? Can I just throw it out there? Like, I don't need a flag. I don't think Jesus said, go therefore and make a flag and share it with all nations. Like, I I just don't get it. It's really quirky. Uh, But but the the other part of it is, if you're going to make a Christian flag, I don't know that flying it below another flag, like, do you you hear what I'm saying? Like, that's a little sacrilege already. Yeah, yeah. This is America 101 in some sectors. I'm going to be honest with you. It's very frightening. 
I went to a Christian middle school and high school. Now, when I was in middle school, every single day, we would start with these three things. I think the next slide. We had a pledge to the Bible, a pledge to the Christian flag. Again, why do we have a Christian flag? And a pledge to the United States of America. Now, what's really odd to me is instead of just having, now I'm gonna, someone's gonna be offended tonight. Can we just trust that we still love each other if I offend you? All right, all right, okay. I, I'm already uncomfortable with pledging my allegiance to anything that's not Jesus, you know what I mean? Like, like I don't, as a Christian, I've decided, and I have a lot of friends who don't do this, but for me, I've decided I will not recite the Pledge of Allegiance. And it'd be a little odd here now, I suppose, but just in general, if I'm gonna pledge my allegiance to anyone, it's gonna be to King Jesus because he's Lord of the world and no empire is. And so that's a personal conviction, but I get a little worried because to over-Christianize it, we've got the, the idol of the Bible and the idol of the Christian flag now. Like, am I supposed to pledge my allegiance to a book or pledge my allegiance to the God of the book? Oh, am I to pledge my allegiance to a cloth that has a cross on it? Or to a kingdom that expands beyond the borders of the nation that we happen to be born into? You see, one of the things that we have to start with when we start thinking about politics and Jesus is about how the kingdom of God is not located in one sphere of reality. It is everywhere, all at the same time. So I had a bit of a disadvantage growing up. Now, it's interesting because scholars have noticed this problem. They've noticed this trend and in the 60s, and you know, I was, I was reminiscing on how this was in the 60s, and I was like, oh man, this is just some hippie guy trying to write a smart person paper, right? But, but you'll, you'll catch the drift. So, so this guy named Robert Bella, who if you study religion in a university setting, his name might come up because he's an expert on religion, nationalism, and all things um, you know, political. And this is what he wrote back in 1967. He said, behind the civil religion, talking about the United States, again, I can't talk to Canada, right? This is what he says. Behind the civil religion at every point lie biblical archetypes, exodus, chosen people, chosen uh, promised land, new Jerusalem, sacrificial death and rebirth. But it is also genuinely American and genuinely new. It has its own prophets, its own martyrs, its own sacred events and sacred places, its own solemn rituals and symbols. It is concerned that America be a society as perfectly in accord with the will of God as men can make it. And by the way, men is intentional there if we know how the world has gone throughout history, right? And it's not good. And delight wall, the nations. You see, what we do in Western cultures, be it the United States, Canada, elsewhere, is we, we blur the categories. Even when we say we're not blurring the categories, we create religious symbolism around things that might not be so religious after all, at least not in the way of Jesus. And so I, I just wanted to kind of put this out there 
to say, look, this is the stuff, this is my political stuff I bring to the table. Like this is the, the, the narrative I grew up in. It's different probably than yours. From a distance, you've probably seen some of it once in a while and thought, huh, that's odd. But it's important that we understand wherever we come from, our own sort of embeddedness in a way of seeing the world. And then we start to ask, but what about Jesus? And how does he invite us to see the world? So thinking about the politics of Jesus, what I want to do, we're going to get a little wild tonight. We're going to keep it to about 30-ish minutes. We're going to start with Jesus, and we're going to notice the way he entertains a political question. But then what we're going to do is we're going to say, okay, so this is how Jesus responds to a political situation. Then we're going to say, what did his followers do with that information, with that story? How did they go and put this thing into practice? And so we're going to step into a book that was written about 60 years later called Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And we're going to try and tie it together and see if it works. Is that okay? A little bit experimental tonight too. So I'm just going to dump stuff at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some of you are like, he just said revelation, that's rad. And some of you are like, he just said revelation, that's bad. You know, like depending on your baggage there, but we're going to go there anyway. Cool? Okay. Luke chapter 20, verse 20 through 26, it says this. The legal experts and the chief priests were watching Jesus closely and sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They wanted to trap him in his words so they could hand him over to the jurisdiction and authority of the governor. They asked him, teacher, we know that you are correct in what you say and teach. You don't show favoritism, but teach God's way as it really is. Liars, right? I mean, outright liars. They keep going. Does the law allow people to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Since Jesus recognized their deception, he said to them, show me a coin. Whose image and inscription does it have on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. They couldn't trap him in his words in front of the people. Astonished by his answer, they were speechless. They wanted to trap Jesus, but what does Jesus do? He uses their words and takes them to a place they didn't expect. And you know, he wins because he, he's Jesus, he wins, right? Let's look at one of these coins. So this is an ancient coin that Jesus would have actually been referring to. And that's Caesar. Isn't he a nice looking chap? And you'll notice on the left side, now I, I don't know if any of you have learned Latin, but basically that says Augustus. And on the other side is Divi.f. And basically what that means is son of God, right? So this is a man on the coin, who claimed to be divine. So Jesus is holding this idolatrous coin and he says, give it back to him, whatever. 
And we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But here's the problem. This kind of passage has been used in a way often that does something completely counterintuitive to what Jesus seems to be up to here, which I didn't tell you everything he's up to. But just go with me for a minute. I grew up hearing this as an opportunity to say, there are things that you do that are part of your Christian duty. And then there are things that you do that are part of your political duty. And they, they overlap, don't, don't get me wrong, but sometimes you have to do things that maybe feel a little un-Jesus-y for the greater good. Sometimes you have to kind of compromise and, and figure out what it means to be political. And yes, you're still a Christian, but you might endorse bombing some people. You, you see what I'm saying? Right? And so, so in my world, I grew up hearing, you're always a Christian, but sometimes you might do things that some people might deem less than Christian. Because here, Jesus clearly says there is a Christian duty, and then there is a duty to Caesar. Now, I don't hold any sense that that's the best way to read this passage. But often, even if not said explicitly like I just said it, that's been one political narrative that Christians have used in the world. Now, I realize I'm saying this on a political holiday, and I, I certainly don't want to disrespect anyone or anything like that. So if you're kind of holding that, just hopefully you can take a deep breath and know like that is not where I'm going tonight. But what I want to do is just recognize the fact that sometimes we make things seem Christian that aren't because we've been so ingrained in a world that has said, my political worldview is right because it, it's logical, it makes sense. And if it's right, it must be right because God thinks so too. The earliest Christians did not have the convenience of breaking down those categories like that. The world was rough. The world was hard. And so what I want to do is I want to talk about how hard that world was. And, and I want us to really start to think at kind of the big picture, sort of the paradigm space of Jesus and his politics. And rather than go through the Sermon on the Mount, which I think if you want to know the politics of Jesus, just read the Sermon on the Mount, let it surprise you, let it linger and see what happens. I want to look at how some early Jesus followers walked this out. And so we're going to be in the book of Revelation. 60 years later, sometime in the 90s, a man named John, we think he might have either been a, an original disciple of Jesus, but he would be very, very old by this point, or another John, because John's not an uncommon name in the first century, who was also a leader and follower of Jesus. And so in this letter, to, to kind of just give us a little bit of framing, he has images that are, that are just bizarre, right? If you've ever read parts of Revelation, it's just, it's just bizarre. And we can just call it bizarre. It's not sacrilegious to call the Bible bizarre. It is bizarre sometimes. But sometimes we do something with an image, a metaphor, a picture and we try and capture it and carve it into wood or stone and make it as clear-cut and literal as possible. If you were ever in any literature class and you took poetry and tried to make it literal, like, I mean, even think of biblical language, right? God is a rock. How many of us think God's actually a rock and would that be a good idea? No, 
right? But for some reason, we really like doing this with the book of Revelation. Eugene Peterson. See, as soon as you say Eugene Peterson, everyone's like, okay, sure, right? We agree with that. Uh, Eugene Peterson, the guy who translated the message, but also a fabulous biblical scholar. He said this about Revelation in his uh, small book on it. He says, a poet, referring to John, the writer, a poet uses words not to explain something and not to describe something, but to make something. Poet in Greek means maker. Poetry is not the language of objective explanation, but the language of imagination. It makes an image of reality in such a way as to invite our participation in it. So as we step into Revelation, I'm not gonna be able to solve all of the problems with Revelation for you tonight. I'm probably gonna say stuff and you're gonna be like, but what about, sorry, can't do it tonight. But what I want you to sort of have as your frame of reference are two things. Number one, imagery is meant to be imagery for a reason. Images aren't always meant to just give us hard, cold facts. As much as they're meant to, point us to the beautiful, powerful, wonderful, slaughtered lamb named Jesus, right? The second thing, what I want us to do today is it's really an exercise in saying, if the New Testament contains all of these letters, right? We've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, and then letters. And if Revelation, when it starts, says, this is a letter, and actually says, and there's some micro letters in there to some churches, then why in the world would we read something like 1 Corinthians and be like, whoa, Paul's laying into that church in Corinth. And he's, he's helping them see that the way you worship and the heart behind how you worship matters. But then when we get to Revelation and it just happens to be a little more poetic and image saturated, we're just like, oh yeah, that's about our future someday. You know what I mean? Like, like for people reading these letters in the first century, when they, when they got the book of Revelation in the middle of the 90s of the first century, yeah, not the 90s, like when some of you were born probably, weird, but like the 90s, like of the first century, they're saying this applies to our lives. This is for now. This matters here and now. And, and of course we can build the bridge to why it matters for us, that's what we're gonna do. But we have to kind of have this frame of reference that before anything else, Revelation is a letter and it has meaning for the people who received it. And it's written in a genre often that's called apocalyptic. So it's going to get crazy, but they weren't like, they knew what apocalyptic literature was because Revelation wasn't unique in presenting it to them. You follow? So when they heard an image, they knew it was an image. Okay. I don't have a lot of time, so I can't prep you anymore. I tried, like, I'm really, like, I'm really trying to hold your hand because I know it's going to get crazy right now. So, we good so far? Okay. So, I want to talk about John for a couple of minutes because we need to know his world. We need to know what's going on here if we want to understand how John applied Jesus's teachings about politics, not just that one Caesar passage, but the whole gospel to how they were living 60 years later at the end of the New Testament period. So we don't know who John is exactly. Some have thought that he was the apostle John and it is possible. 
So often we, we call this John, John the seer, because he's seeing things and writing them down, right? Very creative title for a guy. And, and John the seer may or may not be the apostle John, but what matters is that we know a disciple of Jesus named John finds himself in a small island off the edge of modern day Turkey. And he's there and he's under, may I say, quarantine, right? Like he has been exiled there by the governor somewhere in the mid-90s. And during this time, apparently the authorities do not like that he's been talking a lot about Jesus and causing a ruckus. And so he's in a rock quarry, most likely, and he's got his (laughs) whole life in front of him to pound on rocks as an elderly dude. Doesn't that sound fun, right? So he is living a, a political existence that gets him excluded from the political system towards an eventual, slow, gradual, painful, catch your own fish or die sort of situation in Patmos. You follow? And so he's on this island and he has this vision and he starts by saying, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's actually the first thing in the entire book. And, and when he says that, he sets us up. He says, look, everything you're about to read, it reveals Jesus of Nazareth. And so we ought to be thinking if we read anything in the book that doesn't immediately look like the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we ought to ask some very probing questions of what John is up to. Dot, 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 imagery, right? Genre matters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in 70 AD, something tragic happens the temple in Jerusalem falls flat to the ground and the Romans come in and destroy Jerusalem. I mean, and, and what's really fascinating is this is one of the things Jesus predicts. In Mark chapter 13, he says, Rome is gonna come in and not one stone is gonna be left upon another. This thing is all falling down. So if this happens, run for the hills, get out of Dodge because one person's gonna be taken, another will be left and it won't be good. And it's not people get ready, Jesus is coming, soon we'll be going home. I don't know if you know that song. But anyway, two of you know that song because you are my age. Continuing on. So Jesus already gave these disciples in Jerusalem clear instructions. When you see the place surrounded by armies, go. Don't stay. Get out of Dodge. Run for your lives. And so we believe that John is part of a Jewish group that actually migrates out of Israel and ends up in a region called Asia Minor or modern day Turkey. Now, as things go on, this place is saturated in Roman Empire, we'll just call it worship. It's idolatry 101, all designed to prop up what Rome does as good for the world. So if you're suffering, if you're at the bottom of the pyramid they've created, don't worry because it's actually good for the world because Rome knows best. And so the Roman empire and religion gets really fascinating really quick. There's one God named Pax. Pax was considered the God of peace. And there's this idea in ancient Rome called Pax Romana. And and there's just a quick quote here that I think will just frame the ideology of the Roman Empire and how they went about politicizing the rest of the world. 
This is what Pax Romana says. Pax Romana was achieved by a combination of strong military and political policies that focused on the unification of the provinces through cultural acceptance, incorporation, the promise of security, reciprocity, and rewards. Does that sound like any modern places you've been to? Who inspired the Europeans before they came to this continent? Stories like this. Rome was the glorious empire. I've been to Washington, D.C. You walk around and you're like, am I in ancient Rome? Very fascinating. Very fascinating. And so this is the world of John. And there's some other gods that you may uh, be interested in hearing about. Nike. I'm wearing them right now. Why does my shoe have a Nike swoosh on it? It's an abstract wing based on the goddess Nike, which means victory. Pretty cool design, actually. Very, very not good god in the first century. Roma. Roma was the female embodiment of the glorious empire. And then, of course, there was the emperors. The emperors, as you saw on the coin, are worshipped as deities. And once they die, they're officially considered deities. You follow? So all of this to say that this is a very messy, messy political world because you don't go to the market without burning incense and saying, Caesar is Lord. You don't go and do your business practices without a brief prayer where you acknowledge Roma and the glorious empire. Everything is religious in the ancient world. There is no dichotomy. You can't silo my religious self over here and my political self and my, I'm a baseball coach to my child's little league. You know, like, like you can't silo the world like that in the ancient world. It's just all messy together. You follow? And so John says, I need to write about this. I need to talk about this because the churches that I have loved and overseen, they're, they're, some of them are compromising. Some of them are tempted to compromise. And some of them are suffering all because of the political machine cloaked in its religiosity as it is. And to my very nice slide person back there, we are skipping that extended quote by Richard, Richard Bauckham. But if you want a scholar to look at with the book of Revelation, Richard Bauckham is your next best book. Okay, so we're going to be in Revelation chapter 17 for the next few minutes. And trigger warning, is that a thing? Yeah. Uh, whether or not it's necessary. Um, <laughs> John doesn't use very nice words in this chapter, okay? <laughs> and so I, I just want to kind of put that out there. We're going to actually talk about that. It's a term that in modern day would be derogatory to women, okay? So I throw that into the hat. I'll explain some stuff later. So if you can give me the benefit of the doubt as we read this passage, we'll get to it briefly in a bit, okay? This is the whole chapter. So I'm going to read it fast because I don't want to take you... Uh, another hour at the convergence, maybe another 15 minutes, okay? Sound good? All right. Then, John says, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls spoke with me. Come, he said, 
I will show you the judgment upon the great prostitute who is seated on deep waters. The kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her, and those who live on the earth have become drunk with the wine of her whoring. Yes, that was one of the words. Anyone think there's imagery here yet? Yeah, let's keep going. Then he brought me in a spirit-inspired trance to a desert. There I saw a woman seated on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names. It had seven heads and 10 horns. The woman wore purple and scarlet clothing and she glittered with gold and jewels and pearls. In her hand, she held a gold cup full of the vile and impure things that came from her activity as a prostitute. A name, a mystery, was written on her forehead, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the vile things of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk on the blood of the saints and the blood of Jesus' witnesses. I was completely stunned when I saw her. Can we pause right there? So some scholars point out that as John is in this trance and he's seeing all these things, even though he knows it's bad, it's awful. In this moment, he is so enamored by the greatness of this woman that he actually snaps into woe. How many of you have ever been tempted by something that looks good and you went, whoa, and then he said, oh, <laughs> like, right? This is John, because look, the angel actually has to snap him out of it here and, and says, then the angel said to me, why are you amazed? Right, I love that, I love that. Whether or not that's really what's going on here, we will never get to know. I think it's pretty cool kind of reading it that way. So we'll just go with it, okay? I will tell you, <laughs> yeah, that's the best way to do Bible interpretation, by the way. It feels good. It's funny. So we're just going to, that's not, just FYI. Just caught myself. That's just really good though. Eh, whatever. We all do it. Let's be real. I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the seven-headed, ten-horned beast that carries her. By the way, if that's literal, run for your lives. Yeah? Oof. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. Those who live on the earth, whose names haven't been written in the scroll of life from the time the earth was made, will be amazed when they see the beast because it was and is not and will again be present. Don't let yourselves get confused by that tonight. It's just interesting, isn't it? Let's keep going. This calls for an understanding mind. The seven heads are seven mountains, or actually hills in, in the Greek, are seven mountains or hills on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings. I want to pause here because there's just a, a little nugget that's really helpful. Are we talking about Babylon or not, right? 
So, so we, we, we kind of have this like sense, like he's, he's saying, look, Babylon is this woman, this prostitute who does these bad things. And then we, we find out about these seven hills. Now, if you go to Rome, in the ancient world specifically, and even now, and you'll, you'll find out that geographically, actually, there are seven hills. They're called the seven hills of Rome sometimes in ancient literature. Pretty fascinating, right? So like I wrote a paper because I'm nerdy when I went to graduate school, right, on this topic. And I like found like something like 10 references to this. So, so we know we're in Rome, right? So these seven hills are, the, the author's trying to say, look, Babylon is actually Rome. See how this imagery stuff works? But then there's these clues. Okay, keeping them, keeping moving. Five kings have fallen. The one is, and the other hasn't yet come. When that king comes, he must remain for, a sh- for only a short time. As for the beast, that was and not is, uh, yeah, you get it, <laughs> and is not. It is itself an eighth king that belongs to the seven, and it is going to destruction. The 10 horns that you saw are 10 kings who haven't yet received royal power, but they will receive royal authority for an hour going or along with the beast. These kings will be of one mind and they will give power, give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, but the lamb will emerge victorious for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Those with him are called chosen and faithful. Then he said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples, crowds, nations, and languages. As for the 10 horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will destroy her and strip her bare. They will devour her flesh and burn her with fire because God moved them to carry out his purposes. That is why they will be of one mind and give the royal power to the beast until God's words have been accomplished. The woman whom you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. A lot of what the author is saying in that last section is simply this person, this empire thinks they're in charge of the world but there's other kings that are gonna come. And when they rise up, they're gonna flatten that to the ground. And God will be like, right on, because this Rome thing is really oppressive to my people, right? So, so ultimately what we see here is God saying, look, empires do what? They rise and they fall. Political systems rise and they fall. But Jesus is Lord of lords, King of kings. So this Babylon, this woman, this prostitute, this Babylon, did I say Babylon twice up there? No, in my notes I did, that's, oh, it, no, I did. Ah, oh, school of redundancy school. It's Rome. <laughs> and this comes up multiple times, but I'm gonna kind of try and get to a place where we understand now, so why, what's the payoff here? Why are we even in this book today? For 60 years, these followers of Jesus have had to ask, how do we live in a political system that is fueled by idolatry, oppression, and suffering? And in the letter that we have called Revelation, John wants us to know 
that the early Jesus followers had to make a choice. Would they go all in on Jesus as King and Lord and as the one who informs all of the ways that they choose to be political together? Or would they compromise? Would they compromise? Is compromise an option? Because it seems as though many of them did. Michael Gorman gives us a great tip here. He says this, should we or can we go to a pagan temple to do our banking or purchase meat? Should we acknowledge the sovereignty of the emperor when asked to do so at a public event in the precincts of his temple or at another of the many events in his honor? You see, they always had to ask, I have to feed my family. How do I engage here? How do I engage here? Is compromise an option? And the compromise was big because the, the Roman Empire, the, you know, the mean word that John uses, had seduced so many people because they were powerful, because they had all the resources. Because in Rome, if you were a Roman citizen at least, like, they would just give you bread every so often just to let you know that, hey, we're great. And Jesus says, hey, you don't have to be seduced by that. And it seems as though, N.T. Wright points this out, that the language of prostitution, this isn't the kind of prostitute who, because of that kind of a system, finds herself at the bottom of the pyramid of empire and finds herself forced to do things that we would hope no one would ever have to do on the streets. You know what I mean? Like, that's not even the situation. It's the opposite. It's the person at the top who says, I'm so great. I'm so beautiful. You want what I have. Come and get it. You see the difference? And so John says, you don't want it. You don't want what this empire has to offer. So much so that in the next chapter, we get the punchline. And this is where we're going to land today. The punchline is this. Revelation chapter 18, verse 4. It'll be on the screen. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people, so that you don't take part in her sins and don't receive any of her plagues. I think we're casual enough for me to just throw this out there and it's gonna be a little sacrilegious. Basically, John says, you don't want spiritual STDs. You follow? So much sexual euphemism in that passage. Because Jesus knows that if you collude with empire, if you collude with these systems that are actually run by someone the book calls the dragon, the Satan, the devil, compromise, that just hurts you and it dehumanizes other people. And so these early Christian followers of Jesus in Asia Minor not only were they being asked not to compromise, they were being asked to sacrifice the goods and services they could get from being a good team player in the empire so that they could show the world a better way of being political. I have one last point. I think that when we get down to it, Jesus says, John is compelling us to consider. Follow Jesus. 
Give allegiance to the author of love. Be part of the world God is creating, not the world that is trying to actually corrupt God's good creation. You follow? That you and I actually exist within this realm called the kingdom of God. And yes, the world as it is, it's messy, it's gross sometimes, and it's disappointing. But as citizens of an alternative kingdom, we can bring hope. We can bring light. We can be political in a whole different kind of way. Where the fruit of the spirit are what we're known for, not the vile things of empire. Where we're known for being people of peace, not people of violence where we're known for people who take in those who are downtrodden rather than trod on people for our own benefit. That is the way of Jesus. As we see it lived out 60 years after Jesus said, give Caesar what is his. Because when you give to God what belongs to God, what do you actually give? The coin has Caesar's image on it. Who has God's image on it? you do. Give God your whole life. That is the point of Jesus's teaching. And that was the cost that John the seer was inviting these Christians at the end of the first century to consider taking up for themselves. That is being political in the way of Jesus. Let me pray. So Jesus, thank you. I say that and I don't want to say it in an empty way, like saying thank you that you call us to be sacrificial. That's, that's actually really hard. Help us. Help us to say thank you with the genuineness that comes from knowing that self-sacrificial love, the love we see demonstrated on the cross, the love that looks like a baby little slaughtered lamb as Revelation will put it. It's the foundational place from which we go into the world as image bearers to bring your love, healing, and grace as we are political in a whole new way. Thank you, Jesus, for the folks who are here and online. May we be empowered by your spirit to love and live like Jesus wherever we may go. Amen. Amen. Okay, so that is the message from the Convergence on Jesus and his politics. Now, on November 25th, we are going to gather together at Brentview Baptist Church. It's right next to the UFC. You can walk there. We're going to gather and have a live conversation. It is an open mic policy. We're doing these once a month called Convergent Conversations, and we're going to talk about Jesus and his politics, the politics of Jesus, how Christians can engage in politics. So November 25th, you can join us in the room or on Zoom if you want to register for the Zoom event, go to Instagram, check out our handle, which is the underscore convergence underscore YYC. That's the underscore convergence YYC. The registration link will be there. We hope to see you either in the room or on Zoom. Until next time, grace and peace.